So we are in part two today of this new series of messages we started last week called Leading Through. And I uh, want to begin by telling you a little bit of a story. Um, it's, it's a story where I actually get to be the good guy, so I'm really excited about that. I don't usually get to tell stories like that, so that's kind of nice. I want to tell you about the best compliment I ever received after preaching. This happened about 10 years ago, so it's only been downhill from there, apparently. It's been really good. Um, so it was when I was a pastor at a church in Chicago, and I preached this message. And the message was kind of a hard one. As I recall, it was on repentance. And um, after the message was over, I was standing in front of the uh, stage uh, with a friend. I was chatting with him. And all of a sudden, across the room, I spot this guy, and we made, like, quick eye contact. It's a guy I'd never really met before. Um, I'd seen him around our church, but I hadn't gotten a chance to meet him. But I made eye contact with him, and immediately he made a beeline across the room to come and talk to me. Now, normally, when I don't know you, that it, like he didn't look especially like happy about it. So like that was kind of scary, because I was like, in the three seconds it took for him to walk over, I'm like, okay, all right, brace yourself. You know, come on, okay, you're a big boy, you can handle this kind of thing. You know, like trying to get myself hyped up for what, you know, I hated that, you know, whatever he was going to say. So he walked over. And he introduced himself. He stuck out and he said, Wes, hi, my name is Chris. And uh, I, I just want to tell you, and this is the compliment. This is the best compliment I've ever received. Chris stuck out and he said, Wes, my name is Chris. I know we've never met. I just want you to know, I don't think I believe anything you actually just talked about. But I believe that you believe it. And that meant something to me. And I said, you know what, Chris? I'll take that. You know. And so I shook his hand right there. Uh, some of you are like, that was the greatest compliment you ever received. That sounds really depressing. Well, maybe you should find a new career, which maybe, I don't know. Anyway, but Chris said that, and here's what I think Chris was trying to, trying to point me toward. It's this idea that we want to talk about today. You see, Chris, um, as I got to know him a little bit over the years, this was literally like his second or third week coming to our church. Um, Chris was like a Chicago blue-collar guy through and through, okay? Chris was an industrial plumber, so like he would go to like these really huge factories and stuff, and he would work on the plumbing and all these fixtures in there. Um, Chris, as I would grow to learn, he had some addiction issues. He was an alcoholic, and Chris found himself in our church that morning uh, because things had gotten so desperate with his wife and his marriage and with his kids that he, despite not even knowing if he really believed in God, definitely not if he believed in Jesus, found himself in our church that morning because he was just desperate enough to turn to God to try and find an answer. And uh, just a real quick side note, those of you in the room, those of you online, I just want you to know, I said this to Chris, I'll say this to any of you. Hey, if you find yourself here, and you don't know you believe any of the stuff I talk about and any stuff that gets shared on the stage, I want you to know Crossbridge is a community where you are allowed to belong before, if ever, you decide to believe. Okay, that this is a place where every person matters and uh, your story is valuable and we're glad you're here whether or not you've ever decided to believe the way that we believe. That's why I kind of told Chris that day. And Chris, like a lot of people I got to meet, you know, he grew up, you know, like in the Roman Catholic Church, right? So he was kind of like burnt out on that, you know, felt kind of guilt-ridden by that and that sort of thing. And I think he was inspired by being a part of a community where people actually seemed authentic and where people spoke with this idea that I want us to talk about today. It's this idea called moral authority, okay? And moral authority, to kind of give you a definition for it, moral authority is what you get when your life lines up with your leadership. Okay, moral authority is what you get when your life lines up with your leadership. Okay, moral authority is the idea that, that essentially I'm practicing what I'm preaching, right? Like I'm not asking you to do something 
that I wouldn't do myself. Okay, moral authority is what happens when my life lines up with my leadership. Now, I want to go through what I talked to you about last week, okay? Um, last week, when we began this whole, like, leading through journey or whatever, I made this statement to you, and a statement that, you know, I imagine for some of us is kind of weird, right? But this idea that everybody is a leader to somebody. And I know when I say that, some of you are like, who, me, a leader, right? And the idea is that we just need a better definition of leadership. And a greater definition for leadership is influence. It's the idea that I seek to use whatever influence I've received and been given by God, right? That I actually use that influence as a way to lead people to a desired destination, right? We really want you to come to this Easter egg hunt. We're trying to <laughs> subtly influence you to sign up for it. Y'all, I'm sorry, because I'm sure I probably did something wrong. So uh, this is on me, not you. Uh, though it is good subliminal messaging for you. So anyway, um, leadership is simply, it's one word, right? It's influence. It's the idea that I'm going to allow myself um, to, to use whatever influence I've been given to lead people to a better destination, to create a better world. Now, for us who are followers of Jesus, we want to do that in the name of God, you know, on behalf of Jesus, okay? Uh, for those of you who might be watching this or in the room, you're not sure you're a Jesus follower, okay? Hey, it's still leadership is a way in which we can make the world a better place, that we can make the world a more fair, equitable, whatever it is, uh, kind of place that we want to do that. So I'm inviting you on this journey with us. We talked about this basic idea of how it's important to understand our influence and our resources are a gift, okay? And so last week I shared on that. Um, I would really encourage you, if you haven't checked that out, go on our Facebook page or YouTube, go to crossbridgechristian.com slash messages. You can check it all out there. Uh, it's online there and you can find it out. Um, we also have a podcast. Cross, just look up Crossbridge and your podcast. Yeah, that's right, podcast. I'll let anyone have one of those nowadays. So you can check it out there because I know you probably leave this place every week. You're like, how can I get more of this through our weeks? Now you can. Yeah, seems very excited about that. All right, so today I want to talk to you about this idea of moral authority through the lens of a guy in Scripture who we often don't talk a whole lot about, who we don't know a whole lot about. But his story is actually pretty cool pretty inspiring. It's a man whose name is Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, uh, last week I talked to you about the kingdom of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, all that, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he conquers the nation of Judah. God's really dissatisfied with the way that his people are kind of acting right now. So he says, okay, Judah, we're going we're gonna to go in a timeout right now. We're going to have, we're going to sit down for a little bit and have a timeout, okay? So 70 years go by, the people are living in Babylon, this nation has conquered them. In the meantime, Babylon was actually conquered by the Medes and the Persians, okay? Medes and the Persians. And so they conquer Babylon. Now they kind of become the big ruling authority. And the Medes and the Persians make a decision that they want to send a small contingent of the Jewish people back into Palestine because they thought, well, hey, you know what would be a really good idea is we have some enemies out there on our western front. So if we kind of repopulate Palestine with people, they can kind of be a little buffer zone for us. They can protect us from our enemies on that side, right? Can kind of help us out. So they decide they're going to send these people back into Judah to kind of restart civilization again. Now, here's the problem. When Babylon came in and conquered Judah, the whole place was towed up from the flow up, okay? There was like nothing, nothing left, okay? They, like it was down to the studs. They, they burned all their fields. They burned down the temple. They burned down, like literally, this place is just 
desolate. There's nothing happening, nothing going on, you know, nothing to see here. And so they are starting from square one when it comes to like starting a civilization, like comes to doing your own thing. And so these people would come back and they would start to try and farm the land and all this kind of stuff. But the problem was because there was like no city walls, there were no defenses, they didn't have an army or anything. The minute that the enemy nations around them kind of sensed that the, the Jews were kind of getting something going, it was basically kind of like a house of cards. It was like in such infancy stages, basically all they had to do was kind of go, you know, like they just blow over the house of cards and like the whole nation would kind of have to start from square one again. And they just kind of kept replaying this process over and over again. This is where a guy Nehemiah comes in. Nehemiah was a chief advisor to the king. And Nehemiah also happened to be a Jewish man. And his brothers came to him visiting one day. Uh, they came back from Judah, this place where they've been trying to repopulate and all this stuff. And the, Nehemiah asked his brothers, like, hey, guys, how's it, how's it going? And they said, Nehemiah, we've got to be really honest with you, man. It sucks. Like, this, this is not going too well. Um, this, is, this is, I mean, frankly, this kind of, uh, you know, like an offense to God's name, we kind of feel like, because it's just so messed up. It's so torn up. It's so bad. Nehemiah, we're told, the very opening chapter of the book of Nehemiah, it's a book in our Bible, and it's essentially kind of Nehemiah's journal that he writes of like all this stuff that he experienced. Nehemiah says he wept for the city for, for several days, you know, like he was real, you know, worked up about this. And then he, he decided, you know what? I'm a chief advisor to the king. I have this unique uh, influence. I have this unique opportunity, kind of like we've been talking about, to try and maybe do something for my people. So Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah concocts a plan, and then Nehemiah waits for the right moment where he walks into the, you know, the king's presence, as he would do frequently, and he presents his plan to the king. And the king was so excited about this plan that Nehemiah presented to try and help the nation of Judah out. The king said, I'll tell you what, Nehemiah, um, how about you just be the governor of Judah, and I'll just send you there with a bunch of resources and a bunch of men and a bunch of, you know, whatever it is you need. I'll just send you out there, and your job, Nehemiah, is to kind of help the nation of Judah become a thriving part of our empire once again. So Nehemiah is sent to go do that. So Nehemiah gets to the uh, nation of Judah. First thing he decides to do is, you know what? We got to build a wall. You know, we got to do this. Now, he, he knew the reason he needed to do this is because the city needed defending, right? That was exactly what the problem was. People would like, you know, come in and they'd take all the crops and all the livestock and all this kind of stuff. So Nehemiah, in his first couple months in Judah, leads this enormous project, uh, project to build a wall around Jerusalem. So now the people have kind of some semblance of defense. They can kind of stand up for themselves. They got like a possibility to be able to like actually get this thing moving, you know? So, so Nehemiah, you know, he's kind of got his first victory under his belt. He's feeling good. But like a lot of things, it wasn't as simple as just, hey, let's build a wall, okay? Um, in fact, for Nehemiah, it was a lot more challenging than that. Uh, because what Nehemiah discovered was the wall was kind of a picture for the nation. The nation was just a mess right now. And so Nehemiah discovered the nation didn't just have like a defense problem, the nation had a massive economic problem as well. The people who had went into Judah would like put all of their resources into planting fields, into buying livestock, into kind of doing farm. This is like an agrarian society, remember? Okay, so this is kind of how they did stuff. And when the enemy nations and people would come in and destroy all their stuff, well, 
they were kind of stuck because they'd already spent all their money to try and, you know, like get these farms going, right? So they did the only thing that they knew to do, which is they had to go to someone to ask for a loan so they could try it again, right? So they would go either to some wealthy person from a surrounding nation or a wealthy Jewish person from their own nation, and they would have to borrow money. And of course, when they would borrow money and their field got destroyed again by enemies and terrorists and that kind of thing, well, guess what? Now they were going to default on the loan, right? So now... They would have to like sell different parts of their land. Uh, they would have to sell their wives and children, right, to kind of pay off the debt or until they could pay off the debt as collateral. And it was just messed up. And the people of Judah, they were like, well, Nehemiah, we're really pumped about this wall. That's really great. We're, yeah, today, the wall. We love your wall, Nehemiah. Great job, you know. But they said, Nehemiah, this wall ain't going to do us any good if we are living in utter poverty. Like, our families are separated. Like, we, we don't own, we have not a red cent to our name, right? Like, we, we, are, we are in big-time trouble, Nehemiah, and we need your help. And basically, these people raise an uprising that's kind of like, the best I can imagine is if you remember, like, the racial justice uh, kind of movement of last summer and, like, all the protests and things that were happening, like, that kind of level movement happened in Judah of these people saying, like, Nehemiah, we are, we are economically depressed. We, we need your help because we can't keep moving this way. And so with all that as a lead-in, we're going to look at Nehemiah's story here, okay? It's in Nehemiah chapter 5, so if we you know, can't see on screen or whatever, you can at least read it uh, in your Bible and follow along with me. So we're going to start Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. Here's what happens with Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Okay? I was very angry. Now, Nehemiah, kind of, this is just a little side note, one of the things that I feel like I'm learning about being a follower of Jesus is, like, I grew up in kind of a movement where it's like, you need to, like, stuff your emotions way down deep, you know, you need to, like, not feel, you know, a man of God is very, you know, it's like a stone mountain, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, right, that you're trying to be, and that's not correct. That, that is really silly. That is a bad idea about God. The idea of being a godly person often means we feel about situations what God feels, right? I don't think God is looking at the way these people are being taken advantage of economically and feeling just kind of whatever about it, right? My sense is God was probably pretty miffed about that, just as the people were. And Nehemiah was angry about it. It's okay to let yourself be angry. But Nehemiah, because he's smart and he's a good leader, doesn't do what I would do, which is where he shoots off the hip, you know, and just gets angry. Here's what we're told Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, in the next verse, I pondered them, I pondered these charges the people were bringing in my mind, and then accused the nobles, sorry about that, and accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Okay, now this is a really big deal, because for the people of ancient Israel, you were not allowed to charge people of your own country interest. That was that was illegal, right? That, that was like taking advantage of them, right? And these people aren't just charging them like little bitty, itty bitty, teeny tiny interest, right? This is like you know your friendly neighborhood loan shark, you know, like this kind of thing, right? Like like they're charging them big time money trying to make stuff off of them. Um, Nehemiah says, I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, guys, as far as possible. We have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. Okay, so here's what Nehemiah says. Guys, 
you're taking out these loans on your own countrymen, then they can't pay them. So then you're selling their families into slavery. And I don't know if you caught what Nehemiah said there. We are spending our own money to buy them back. So apparently Nehemiah and his little posse with him, they would see people who were economically destitute, and he would put up the money that they needed to pay off their debt, right? He would buy them back. But then apparently these wealthy one percenters in, in Judah, they would just kind of say, okay, well, you want another loan, right? And the people, they had no options, right? They had no money. So they would take out another loan. They would default on the loan and they would repeat this process again, right? And Nehemiah is saying, hey guys, I, I know you're really happy about making a buck, but we're trying to build a civilization right here, right? Like th this ain't the time for you to start acting like Wells Fargo or Bank of America and thinking you can just, yeah, coming at you right there online, yeah. Okay, this ain't the time. Yeah, you, Jim Wells, and you know, I don't know, whatever, whoever was chief of that, right? Like, this isn't the time to try and make a buck. This is the time to try and be a loving person and help people who can't help themselves, right? Nehemiah is rightfully furious, and he confronts them on, on, the, on the just craziness of what they're doing here. We're told in the very next part of the verse, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Well, I'll bet they did. Right? I'll bet they did kind of feel a little cricket kind of coming on right there, right? So Nehemiah continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Okay, so what Nehemiah is saying here is, hey, we can do better than this. Right? Hasn't God called us to something bigger and better than this? Right? Hasn't God asked us to be a part of like actually, you know, doing the right thing? <laughs> of actually like, you know, trying to be helpful here to our fellow neighbors and countrymen and whoever is, right? Now, here's why I want you to notice about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was able to call people to a higher standard because Nehemiah himself was living to a higher standard, okay? Like, Nehemiah can't go and say, hey guys, what you're doing is wrong if Nehemiah is also doing what is wrong, right? I don't know if you've ever tried to be corrected by someone who's being hypocritical in their correction. How'd that go? Right? Not good, right? I, I can tell you the number of hypocrites I've taken advice from. Zero, right? Like, like I, I don't want to hear it, right? The only reason why Nehemiah could have the courage to confront these wealthy, powerful, important people was because Nehemiah had practiced what he had preached. His life and leadership were lining up. Nehemiah had this thing we're talking about today. He had moral authority. He wasn't taking advantage of his fellow countrymen. And in fact, he was actually helping his, he was putting his own money out there in order to help people who could not help themselves, okay? The story continues on, verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. So Nehemiah says, hey, you aren't the only ones that are putting out your resources trying to help people. We're doing that too, uh, losers. All right, that's my little addition right there. Let us stop charging interest. Go back to them immediately. Uh, I'm sorry, give back to them immediately. Their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil, okay? That, that is probably not 1% overall. That's not too bad of an interest rate. That's probably actually like 1% a week or 1% a month, which is a very bad interest rate, not interest rate you want, okay? We will give it back, they said. Now, Nehemiah is really smart. He knows this probably ain't the first time that these guys have said, oh, 
we're so sorry. Oh, yeah, you're right, Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah says, okay, that's good that you want to give it back. So in the next part of the verse, he says, uh, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So then Nehemiah does another really smart thing. Then I summoned their priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. So basically Nehemiah says, hey, I'm going to meet you here with your little promise, and we're actually going to bring in the priests, and you're going to like swear an oath to God. Like essentially, hey, you're going to sign a legally binding contract that you're not going to take advantage of these people again because I don't believe you, actually. Like that's basically what he's saying, right? He's, he's doing a little, little trust but verify kind of action happening right here, okay? And so Nehemiah does this for the people. Um, uh, let's see here. And then I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And Nehemiah basically says, listen, guys, I ain't playing around right here. Like, I, I'm going to wish and pray for God's destruction on you if you do not live up to your word. Which again, it's like, whoo, yeah, man, right? God's serious about injustice. We should just know that right now. If you listen to that story and you think to yourself like I did, well, gee, that sounds like a really nice little world where one guy can just kind of walk up and be like, hey, stop doing that. The people are like, okay, well, I guess we'll stop doing that, right? Like that seems kind of idealized, right? That seems a little too easy, right? That doesn't seem like, like I mean, Seriously, how important can moral authority be? It doesn't seem like it would be that important. Like, I bet Nehemiah was a nice guy, but I mean, come on, Wes. Like, is it really that important? And my answer is yes, because we actually don't have the full story on Nehemiah. After this story, Nehemiah writes in his journal something else that's really important for us to know. Verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, so hey, when I started this job, uh, until his 32nd year, 12 years, that's the entire time Nehemiah was governor of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. Okay, whoa, wait a second here, Nehemiah, what are you saying, man? Yeah, no, I, I didn't take what I was entitled to, is basically it. And he continues on, he says, the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver, that's one pound, essentially, uh, 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and the wine. The assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. All right, so, so here's what Nehemiah says. Hey, I, I left stuff that I deserved on the table because what mattered to me wasn't getting what I deserved. What mattered to me was trying to help people. Right? And Nehemiah actually lived that way. Apparently as governor, Nehemiah got like a little per diem. Like he had this, this food and wine and all this stuff that he was supposed to have each day because he's the governor, right? That's what you get. You're the governor kind of thing, right? And Nehemiah said, hey, you know what? I actually don't need that. In fact, that would be kind of wasteful, right? And Nehemiah tells us that was a new thing. That, that was not what the people before me did, right? And in fact, they didn't just take what they were allotted. They took more stuff from the people. Again, these same cash trap, economically devastated poor, hurting, struggling people, right? And Nehemiah says, why would I do that? that that's not going to help people. That's not going to be a good way to use my influence. That's not going to be a good way to steward my leadership, right? Because again, like we talked about last week, Nehemiah understood heaven rules. And the leadership that he has in his hands 
is only in his hands because God gave it to him in the first place. And so his job as a leader is to use the influence that God gave him in the first place to be a help to the people God had entrusted him to lead. And so Nehemiah continues on. He says, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. So in other words, hey guys, we were here to help people, not to get more stuff for ourselves, all right? Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Again, I left what I deserved on the table because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Okay, so Nehemiah doesn't just not take what he deserves. He takes what he does have and he shares it with people, right? He actually opens his table to these 150 folks, some of which were probably wealthy, important, powerful people, but many of which were also poor, struggling, hurting people, right? Nehemiah used what he had been entrusted not just to enrich himself, but to enrich, to bless, to help, to lead others. Nehemiah practiced this idea in every aspect of his life of moral authority. You can disagree with Nehemiah's leadership, but you are going to disagree with Nehemiah's leadership because Nehemiah was inconsistent. Nehemiah's life and leadership align, and this is what I want us to understand. When your life and your leadership align, that gives you influence. That gives you power, because not a lot of people do that. And our world is starving for people who will do that, okay? Can I tell you why? I'm really cynical about people who work in our you know, government you know, in Washington, D.C., right? It's not because I have some personal vendetta against them, okay? Um, it's not just because they leave in place some arbitrary rule where we have to wake up an hour earlier on Sunday for no apparent reason, okay? Looking at you, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, you know, whoever's in charge of that, right? Okay, that's one reason today, but I'll get over it, okay? Until next year, when I'll be angry again. But you want to know why I'm angry about people who do that? It's because we look on the news all the time, Democrat, Republican, right, left, whoever, right? And we see people whose life and leadership don't match, right? We see people who on one hand are saying, oh, you know, don't take hand out, that's bad, you know, whatever, right? On the, on, they're getting on the till from, you know, some big bank or some big lobbyist or some big firm that needs something, right? You know, they're preaching on one hand that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? But the minute some disadvantaged person wants to enter our borders, it's like, no, no we can't do that, you know? Like, like right, we, we get all angry about it, right? And they, and they act inconsistently. They act hypocritical. There's no moral authority, right? And that rightly makes you and I, as Americans, angry, right? Because we don't like to listen to hypocrites, right? This is why you hate that bad boss. You hate working for him, right? Because their life and their leadership don't match, right? This is one of the things, I've had some bosses I've worked for, right, where their life and their leadership did not match, and it made me angry. It reduced their ability to influence me. It did not enhance it. It made our world not a better place to live instead of making it a better place to live, right? There is incredible power when your life and leadership line up, and when we step into that, 
we have this God-given gift of influence that we can use to move the kingdom forward and to make our world a better place, okay? Nehemiah's story teaches us three key things that I want us to hear, okay? People who lead through do three things. Here's the first thing they do. They live at a higher standard to lead others to a higher standard, okay? Um, I had a boss for a long time when I was an intern, and he would use this phrase a lot with me. He would say, Wes, speed of the leader, speed of the team. And what Bobby meant when he would say that is, Wes, the people you lead are never going to go further or faster than you do. Wes, if you decide you're going to take this to level four, at best, people are going to go to level four, and they're probably actually going to be at three or two or one, right? If you take it to level 10, you might discover that you have some people that go to 10 and nine and eight. But here was his point. You're kind of the lid on the team. You're the lid on the people that, you know, people don't, people won't overshoot the leader, right? They're looking for the leader to lead the way. And so if we want to have a world with a higher, better standard, guess what that means? We have to lead with a higher, better standard. We have to live with moral authority. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, the biographies of his life and his teaching, you'll see this phrase used. Here's one example from uh, Mark chapter 1. The people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. You see that little phrase, he taught with authority, kind of peppered throughout the Gospels when Jesus would teach. Now, some of what I think that means is Jesus had an authoritative manner in which he communicated. Jesus, unsurprisingly, as a son of God, was a, he understood his subject material pretty well, right? When I talk to you about God, I'm making my best educated guess. When Jesus talks to you about God, he's saying, like, oh, pretty easy for me because I am God, right? So I'm sure some of it was that, okay? But here's what I also think. I think when the Gospels tell us about Jesus teaching with authority, it's not just a statement about how Jesus presented his material. It was a statement about the kind of person he was. Jesus was the only person who ever lived with perfect moral authority. Jesus, when I talk to you about things, right, I'm trying to be aspirational in the way I live oftentimes, right? But I'm a fallen human and I'm imperfect. Jesus was not. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is the only person who's given that advice that did it perfectly, right? Jesus had perfect moral authority, and you know what people said? They didn't go, this guy's such a goody-goody, right? Yeah, what did they say about Jesus? They were amazed. They had never seen something like this before. They couldn't wait to follow him, to listen to him, to hear him, right? Because moral authority is powerful. Because leading into higher standard is powerful. Here's the second thing. People who lead through go first. Okay, now when I say people who lead through go first, I don't mean like <laughs> front of the line, you know, I get the thing first, right? Here's what I mean. People who lead through, people who are great at this idea of leading through, they're the people who say, hey, you know what? When it comes to that scary point in the road, when it comes to taking that big risk, when it comes to leading with sacrifice, right? I'm not going to wait for the people behind me to do it first. I'm going to go first, right? I'm, I'm going to set the pace. I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to give someone the gift of going second, right? Uh, I heard this guy named John Acuff several years ago talk about this idea of give someone the gift of going second. And he shared this example where he was in like a Bible study and they got to the, there's like something on like confessing sin or something like that. And of course, like, 
when you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a setting like this, but like church settings, it comes to confessing sin. We come, we we're really sucky at announcing the sins that we need to confess. And some will kind of timidly raise their hand and go like, "Well, I only read my Bible five out of seven days last week." Oh my God, what a sinner! You know, right? Like we come up with like the the worst thing, right? And so. John Acuff shared this story about in their small group, like they were kind of being challenged to confess sin. And it was like really quiet because everyone's kind of like trying to feel out the waters or like, how much should I share right now? And so one guy raised his hand in the group. And the guy said, I got to confess something to you guys. I looked at pornography three times last week. And John Acuff said, this really funny thing happened when truth walked in the room. Because all of a sudden, the second person raised their hand and said, you know what? I did the same thing, too. And then a third person shared something that felt pretty kind of like, oh, I don't know if that's cool to share. You know, like something that's kind of deep and dark that was good and real and helpful. And then a fourth person. And then a fifth person. And John Acuff said that was the best, best prayer time our small group ever had, right? Because for the first time, people were real. And he said the reason people were real was because that one guy had the courage to go first and he gave someone else the gift of being the, the one that got to go second right when you go first you give people the gift of going second and here's what i've noticed when i go first and fail guess what people actually respect you more not less because they think wow wow that may have blown up in their face but i respect the courage it took to move in that direction Third thing, last thing. Leaders who lead through value empowerment over entitlement. When Nehemiah led these people, and when he led them with moral authority, here's what Nehemiah's goal was not. It was not, how can I get everything I'm owed? Nehemiah's understanding, Nehemiah's thought process was, nope, how can I empower the people God has called me to lead? There's a big difference between those two things. Nehemiah saw his entitlements not as something for him just to use and keep for himself. He saw the things he was entitled to as a leader, as an opportunity to leverage to serve others well. Leaders who lead through, people who lead through, aren't clinging to what they feel they deserve. They are giving people what's going to be most helpful and empowering to them. When we think about, like, if you're a Christian, right? You know, I think that's a great leadership technique, no matter whether you're a Christian or not, but here's the truth. Christians, we have the ultimate leader who was entitled to everything, right? He was the son of God, right? Jesus came down to this world, and he was not impressed, okay? Like, he, he came down to the, you know, he was like, wow, I'm really slumming it right now. This wasn't quite the same as the throne room of heaven, you know? Like, hate to tell you, right? And he came down, and his attitude was not, how can I get what I am entitled to? His goal, his mindset was, how can I use what has been given and entitled to me, the authority, the power, the privilege of being the son of God, how can I leverage that to empower others? And when Jesus died on the cross, he did the ultimate empowering job. He died on the cross and he empowered you and I to receive forgiveness of sin and to be able to walk in connection with him. Okay? 
Good leadership doesn't try to get everything it's owed. Good leadership uses what it's been given in its hands to serve as many people as possible. Leaders who lead through value empowering other people over getting everything I'm entitled to, okay? Leading with moral authority has never been more important. There's never been a better opportunity for us to make a difference in the world by being people who allow their life and their leadership to match. My encouragement to you today is let's do this and let's watch God work in us and in our world just as he did in the life of Nehemiah. Why don't we go ahead and stand up. I'm going to pray. We will worship one last time together and uh, then we'll take off this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your perfect example of leadership. Lord, help us to lead in your power. Help us to lead with your character. Help us to be men and women who lead with a kind of moral authority that gives us power. Not the kind of power that we use for our own sake, but the kind of power that we are able to leverage on behalf of the people you have called us to love and to lead. Lord, use us. Lord, work your spirit in us that we might be the kind of people you use to make a difference in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.